It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is the Vice Guide to Right Now, your inside look into the best of Vice. It's Friday, November 23rd. I'm Sophie Kazos. Today we're talking to a researcher named Dr. Natalie Marichal about how targeted advertising on the internet is hurting us all. Dr. Natalie Marichal is a senior research fellow at Ranking Digital Rights, where she studies the impact of information and communication technology companies' business practices on human rights. In an article for Motherboard, she describes a new form of capitalism called surveillance capitalism, which defines the economic system created by targeted advertising by social media companies like Google and Facebook. She depicts a sort of techno-dystopian crisis, wherein targeted advertising is eroding democratic ideals in ways both visible and invisible. This is scary, complicated stuff. So I've invited Dr. Marichal on the show to parse it all out. So Natalie, in your article, you go in-depth on how Facebook and Google and similar social media companies or advertising companies really are commodifying people's private behavior. And you write that through targeted advertising, these companies have figured out a way to commodify reality itself. That sentence really stuck with me. It's a very terrifying sort of sentiment and and sentence. So I'm wondering, let's start there, commodifying reality. What do you mean by this? Sure. So uh, one of the key concepts uh, that I talk about in my article is surveillance capitalism. And that's a concept that was coined by Shushana Zuboff, who's a professor at Harvard Business School uh, back in 2015. Uh, She actually has a new book coming out uh, in in a few weeks in January. And when I talked to Professor Zuboff a couple weeks ago, what she highlighted to me is that surveillance capitalism starts with targeted advertising, but it's much bigger than that. So this is actually about a new economic order. Uh, We have this logic of accumulation based on data tracking and uh, big data calculations performed on data that travels from Silicon Valley to virtually every industry out there. And it creates all these new industries, uh, surveillance as a service, if you will. So what we're dealing with is a giant apparatus that tracks billions of data points about reality, about human reality, about social reality, about physical reality, about everything that happens in the world. And then what it does is that it analyzes all these data points and it figures out how to make money off of these insights, usually by selling people's attention and the ability to influence behavior. The surveillance capitalism is way, way bigger than just social media companies. Companies in all kinds of industries are more and more relying on the commodification of data to make money. So if you look at Ford, for example, uh, which most of us would think of as a car company, their CEO just said recently that the company sees data commodification as key to its future profitability. Uh, 
Or look at Internet service providers uh, who've been fighting tooth and nail for the legal right to watch what their customers do online just so that they can charge more for targeted advertising. And that's also where the current trend of uh, home speakers or personal digital assistants come in. The whole point of these things is to collect even more data about what you and your family are doing in your home. That's what surveillance capitalism is. So give us kind of the layperson's version of this. You, you go onto your Facebook account. What do you see? What's happening behind the scenes? So what's happening behind the scenes with uh, your Facebook account is that Facebook is performing all of these calculations uh, near instantaneously behind the scenes to figure out what posts to show you in what order and what advertising to show you and where to place it among uh, the newsfeed of your friends, your family, the posts, uh, the pages that you decided uh, to, to follow, that you opted into to following. And it does all these calculations on the basis of Based on what we know about this person, both on what this person has done online and offline in the past and what people like her do online and offline, which are the ads that we can show her that she is the most likely to click on and therefore that we can charge the most for? So when you say online and offline, I get the online part, but how are they tracking offline behavior? So there's a bunch of different ways, and this is something that's still constantly evolving. One way that uh, these giant ad networks do this is by buying data sets that reflect offline behavior. So for example, in the article, I link to, uh, to a news story that talks about how Google and Facebook are increasingly buying up records from credit card companies to figure out what people are buying offline and be able to correlate that with the ads that the people have seen and therefore try to make even smarter calculations about the relationship between the ads they show you and the purchases that you end up making in the real world. And another thing that you talked about is that it's not just people who have accounts in Facebook or who are searching in Google, it's more insidious than that. We're being tracked and our data is being collected on almost every website. How does that play into this? And I'm curious, is there a way at this point to browse the web without being tracked? Not really, no. Uh, So I asked Tim Liebert, who's a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon, about this. And what he told me is that when a page has a like or a share button from Facebook or Twitter or another social network, that means that that company can track what pages you're visiting. And when you load a page, it downloads code from Facebook, for example, in the background for this like button. And the process of downloading the like button allows Facebook to see your IP address, different characteristics about your computer and your web browser, all kinds of settings like that, that together are really revealing and allow them to track you individually across the web. And that allows them to set tracking cookies on your machine. And this happens on a large number of sites, uh, including medical websites, for example. And this obviously has tremendous implications for privacy. So there's really no way to opt out is what it seems like. No, there's no way to opt out. Uh, There are ways to try to minimize uh, your tracking. So a lot of people use ad blockers or other kinds of privacy-enhancing software like the Tor browser, but it can be really challenging to use those perfectly. And these can offer protection uh, at the cost of convenience to a large extent. But in general, this has turned into a 20-year-long game of cat and mouse, where companies build better trackers, researchers find them, different people add, uh, build add-ons to protect against these trackers, and then companies go back and build better trackers. The only thing that can break this cycle is imposing fines on the companies who violate the legislation that's on the books, 
but most of the time the fines are negligible compared to the amount of money that was made. So companies just build those fines into the cost of doing business. And something about your article is that you're pointing out it's not just the sort of individual feeling that one's privacy is being invaded, but that targeted advertising and this new sort of economic system or or model is affecting much, much larger things here, one being the media and how targeted advertising has really started to erode the separation between media companies' editorial decisions and business operations. And, you know, that at one point, and, you know, you can still argue, still is a pillar of journalistic ethics. But now that line between making money and making editorial decisions has become a lot more murky. And you trace that back to targeted advertising. So I just want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the first thing to really keep at the front of our mind when we talk about this is that Facebook and Google and Twitter and all of these other online advertising companies are not journalistic operations. They do not think of themselves as news organizations. And so they don't hold themselves to any particular standard uh, of ethics uh, that, you know, you as a journalist and and your colleagues would, for example. So, you know, of course, this ethical screen between um, business and editorial was never universally respected. Obviously, there were people violating uh, that norm, you know, since the beginning of newspapers. And it's important to recognize that. Uh, But norms, just like laws, are important even when not every everybody's following them, right? Because before the internet era, like, like, you know, like you point to, the traditional media like newspapers and broadcasters saw themselves as an essential part of democratic governance with a really important responsibility to hold power to account, uh, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, right? right? So sometimes there was a tension between this mission and the need to keep the lights on, and that tension was resolved by human beings exercising human judgment within this ethical framework of journalism. But then social media companies like Google, Facebook, and Twitter are a completely different animal. Like I said, they don't see themselves as having a civic mission, and they automate as much decision-making as possible. That's what I mean when I say that Silicon Valley replaced editorial judgment with mathematical measures of popularity. And so as more and more people get their news through online platforms, rather than from their local newspaper or the nightly news, people end up in these filter bubbles where the only news they're aware of is what the algorithms think that people like them are likely to click on. And that's how we end up with a completely fragmented public sphere. Right. These companies are sort of acting like media companies, but also don't purport to be them. And so therefore don't have to follow the same ethical standards. And it becomes extremely complicated, as we've seen. And another issue of these algorithms predicting our behavior or the news that we would like to consume or that people like us want to consume is something you pointed out is that they often perpetuate racism or other forms of discrimination under the guise that math or algorithms are neutral or devoid of bias. And we've seen how this is not true and that algorithms can be and are racist and discriminatory in in many different ways. Can you talk more about that? Definitely. So one of the leading experts on this topic is Sophia Noble from UCLA. And in her book, uh, Algorithms of Oppression, Professor Noble does a really deep dive into this question. Uh, And a lot of it has to do with the fact that algorithms are just reflections of the world around them, or at least of the data about the world around them that they're fed. 
And the basic principle here is garbage in, garbage out, right? You use this biased, human-generated data to train a machine learning system. It's going to replicate the same biases that were in the training data. But because there's a computer involved, people think that the so-called human bias has been removed and that the machine is being objective, like you say. Uh, the recent example of Amazon's hiring algorithm discriminating against women is a really clear and appalling example of that. Right, because when you create an algorithm, there's a, there's a human typing that into a computer. So even though the computer is processing it, it's being coded by a human. Um, That's right. Which people people forget sometimes. So we've talked about media and we've talked about different forms of discrimination that come from algorithms. And these are all elements in a larger point you're making, which is that targeted advertising is is a factor in the erosion of of democracy and our democratic ideals. Um, and this is is a big deal. And it's a little bit overwhelming and hard to wrap your mind around. Um, but it's happening here in the U.S. and worldwide. What can we do about this and, and what's already being done to regulate this kind of advertising? So one piece of regulation that's been getting a lot of attention over the past few years is the general data protection regulation uh, in the European Union. It applies not only to countries in the EU, but also to any company that does business in the EU or that does business with EU persons including outside of the EU itself. So it's a really powerful piece of legislation that basically says that you can't collect data about people without their explicit consent, that you can't condition uh, providing a service to people consenting to having their data uh, collected in this way. In other words, that you can't use uh, the, the coercion of saying, if you don't let us spy on you, you can't use our service to compel people to, uh, to consent to data tracking. And I think this has a lot of potential for um, actually uh, slowing down, at least, uh, the growth and spread of surveillance capitalism. Because with, without the data that is collected upstream, you can't really do uh, nearly as much downstream. So I, th I think data protection uh, regulation and legislation is, is, is really the main battle that we need to be fighting right now. At the same time, uh, up until very recently, a lot of policymakers have been focusing on content problems. So they've been focusing on, for example, combating violent extremism online or tracking down white supremacist discourse on the Internet or generally uh, figuring out ways to automate uh, the removal or uh, the deprioritization of problematic content. And that can be effective to uh, to an extent, but to my mind, that's kind of like putting a big Band-Aid over a bullet wound, right? It's going to stop the bleeding, but it's not going to fix uh, the inherent problem here, because I think what we're really dealing with here is not a content problem, it's an infrastructure problem. And the only way to actually solve the infrastructure problem is to deal with data protection. Right. I think that's such an important framework to share. This may be a kind of cynical last question, but I'm... Curious, you know, we've seen how earlier forms of capitalism, like industrial capitalism, have played out and affected human health and, and the health of the environment. And we kind of know the harmful effects. We live them every day. And we're just starting to live the effects of surveillance capitalism. I'm curious if this form of capitalism, surveillance capitalism, is left unchecked without those regulations you're talking about. What does that future look like? And, you know, kind of what does that dystopia have in store for us? 
Well, so for the worst case scenario, I think all you have to do is look at China, uh, where the state and the private sector are working hand in hand to monitor the population's behavior, both online and offline, in order to control that behavior. So, for example, uh, there's a something called the social credit system, which rewards you for positive behavior like paying your bills on time and sharing ideas uh, that are in line with the Communist Party platform on your social media accounts. And then it also penalizes you for things like returning library books late or expressing opinions that are critical of the government. Even worse, you're actually rewarded or penalized for what your friends and family do. And this system was the inspiration for the Black Mirror episode Nosedive, uh, where this young woman's reputation score plummets so quickly that she ends up homeless and shunned within a single day. So this kind of system is antithetical to what you and I would probably consider freedom. But even worse than that, it provides cover for the worst kinds of human rights abuses, like what's going on in Xinjiang province in western China. And those are the stakes, right? Massive human rights violations like what's happening in Xinjiang, like what Duterte is doing in the Philippines, like what Bolsonaro said from the beginning he wanted to do in Brazil, and yes, what Trump is doing right here in the United States. I mean, there's over 14,000 migrant children in concentration camps in this country because Trump is president. And Trump is president in large part because of this large-scale media manipulation and the collapse of the public sphere, which we can trace back to the targeted advertising business model. The worst case scenario that you just presented is incredibly sobering. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, is is part of the concern here that the government or governments, you know, globally will get access to this data from these social media companies um, in ways that, you know, then will encroach on human rights and privacy rights? And is that already happening? Absolutely. And it's been happening for years. If you remember the 2013 Snowden leaks, a big part of that story was that the NSA was accessing tech companies' user data, sometimes with the company's knowledge and sometimes not. This mass surveillance was not legally authorized, was accountable to no one, and it would have stayed secret if it weren't for Snowden. Other countries have similar arrangements between their tech companies and security services. For example, in Russia... All tech companies and internet service providers have to give real-time, warrantless access to user data to the state security services. The major U.S. companies uh, like Facebook and and Google and Twitter now have formal processes for law enforcement to request user data, uh, and the companies have teams of lawyers who make sure that only lawful requests result in data being provided, but that's not at all the case globally. So this is definitely a real concern. Uh, From the moment that companies are amassing this kind of data, it becomes irresistible to governments who want to be able to, uh, to know what their citizens are up to. Right. All right. Well, let's end there. I want to thank you so much, Natalie. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You can read the full story at motherboard.vice.com. That's it for now. Thanks so much for listening. And tune in again on Monday for another Vice Guide to Right Now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.